to quote the one and only John Lennon, hello, Jadies and Lentz. Welcome to the second show of She Said, She Said for 2021, as tonight we wind up our significant historical series, The Beatles Family. The last 14 months have been amazing. We were so blessed to be able to talk with some of the wonderful people who were closest to the Beatles, including Rogue Best, Chaz Newby, and Angie and Ruth McCartney. And this evening, our series comes to a close with a truly grand finale, A Night to Remember. I am your very excited co-host, Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Records cookbook series which are rock and roll cookbooks and include my recipe records, a culinary tribute to the Beatles. And it features authentic Liverpool scouse from Liverpool's own David Bedford, the author of Liddy Pool and a hot new book called The Country of Liverpool. And a recipe that I'm sure our guests tonight would enjoy, Strawberry Pie Forever. You can check out this delicious culinary tribute to John, Paul, George, and Ringo at my website, lanastag.com. And while you're there, take a look at my other books, including the touching children's book, Little Dog in the Sun. Also sign up for my free newsletter and join in the fun with blogs, recipes, radio show updates, and so much more. And speaking of fun... I think my co-host, who is even more thrilled about this interview than I am, if that's possible, it's not, is waiting in the wings, and she is the fun Jude Sutherland Kessler. Jude, are you there? I am. I'm telling you, butterflies and all. I am not exaggerating when I say that I was more excited last night than I was when I was five years old waiting for Santa Claus. I absolutely (laughs) did not think I would be able to get to sleep because we're getting ready to chat with a lady that I consider to be a real soul sister. Um, As most of you know, if you've tuned in to She Said, She Said, regularly for the last 34 years of my life have been dedicated to um, doing hours and hours of research every single day in writing the John Lennon series, a nine-volume series, in hopes of telling his complete story. The first four volumes uh, are available for you to enjoy, and I'm working away daily on Volume 5, Shades of Life, which will take John through 1965 in about a 1,000 pages. And it's going to be out in the summer of 2022, only 18 months away. It seems unbelievable that we're there. But Volumes 1 through 3 unfortunately are sold out in physical form but you can get all of them on ebook volume four i have a few copies left um it's should have known better john's trek through 1964 and they're all available at my website which is johnlennonseries.com also have a newsletter that comes out several times a year so be sure to sign up for that it's it's completely free and i keep you updated on the progress of the books now To say that my life has been centered on John Lennon is no exaggeration, as my family would readily tell you. Uh, My daughter-in-law, who is married to my son Cliff, has famously said that volume one should have been there was her husband's younger brother. And so we are quite honored to be able to talk this evening with our special Valentine's Day guest who knew John as none other. 
You are so right, Jude. And, you know, I met our guest at Abbey Road on the River in Louisville, Kentucky, several years ago, and I was so impressed at how kind and open and friendly that she was. She spent time chatting with my daughter and my niece, um, Abby and Annie, and we, she was so willing to chat, and we took our picture together, and, and uh, she signed her, her book for us. And um, it, Her book at that time was entitled Imagine This, and it was her second book, and it was about John. And we were, we were all chuffed, as they say, in Liverpool. And that day was, as John would have put it, a real red lettuce event for Abby and Annie and me. And, Jude, I think you've had the same sort of lovely experience. I, yeah, I think everybody has. People adore meeting her and talking with her. We crossed paths the first time in New York City at the 50th anniversary of the Beatles coming to America, which was a huge, and I mean huge, party that was hosted by Mark and Carol Lapidos, a really special fest for Beatles fans in downtown New York City. It was coincidentally the book release event for Volume 3 in the John Lennon series, and I was so thrilled to be able to share that book with her and to get a signed copy of her book, Imagine This, as you just mentioned, which is a greatly expanded version of another excellent book that she wrote earlier entitled John Lennon, My Brother. If you have John Lennon, My Brother, you still need to get Imagine This. Completely different stories. They're both wonderful. And then a few months later, we reconnected at the Los Angeles Fest for Beatles fans and got a special chance to talk. But since then, she hasn't had too, too many opportunities to frequent the States, not only because of COVID, because she is the director for Cavern City Tours and has been involved in a huge and very impressive venture centering on the site of the real strawberry field in Liverpool. And this project has tremendously transformed John's beloved neighborhood of Walton. So we're excited to talk about that project and to welcome to our show one of the people on planet Earth who knew John best and most intimately. Please welcome to She Said, She Said, a teacher, an author, a business director, and now a city transformer, John's sister, the one and only Julia Baird. Hey, Julia. Well, I can't top that, and there's nothing to say now. (laughs) (laughs) You've picked me up so much, I don't know what to say. (laughs) Thank you. I shall record that and take it everywhere with me, everywhere I go. (laughs) Well, we are so happy to have you here. It's thrilling. And I'm going to try to maintain my calm and quiet and let Lena take the ball for a while. But we are thrilled to have you, Julia. We are. That's lovely. Thank you, Julia. Thank you very much. Well, we're just delighted to have you, Julia. It's it's so special. And I know that it's late in uh, Liverpool for you. But uh, we are so excited to share this uh, conversation with all of our listeners. Mm-hmm. It's a real Valentine's treat for everyone. It will come out on Valentine's Day. So 60 years after the fact, the world, as you know, is still very much in love with the Beatles and their songs and are still the soundtrack of soundtrack of min- millions of lives. You knew all of them so well and played such a vital role in their story. So now after years of working as a special education teacher in Chester mm-hmm. and after writing two books about your life and your brother's life, you've taken 
on a new role that honors John, who penned that magical song, Strawberry Fields Forever. As the director of Cavern City Tours, I know you've been working with the Strawberry Field Project. In fact, in 2018, I donated to the project and secured a commemorative brick from the original Strawberry oh. Field building for well, Jude. She was, it was, uh, that was very special. It's lovely because it's a way for you to be a part of it because I'm assuming that you have actually been to Strawberry Field yet. Is that right? I have. Not, not since the project has taken shape. Have you, Jude? Right. No, not since then, two of the original building, uh, but not, not since you've reshaped it. Right, because you know, right, the original building. Because really and truly, both of you, it is, um, it's, I call it, I did some talks, of course, lockdown has closed everything, hasn't it? You know, with the, the dread and the trauma of the coronavirus, it has only just opened and it had to close for the first lockdown. Mm. It had just got going again, the second lockdown. It had just ramped up again, mm. the third lockdown, which we're still in now. So, you know, it has been, it's, it's been like uh, some big mallets has come down on the business's mm. head every time it sort of opened up. But the building is absolutely stunning. I call it Battlestar Galactica 21st century. <laughs> you go in and it's like you almost feel as if you're going to Star Wars, you're going to take off and zoom into the stratosphere. It's stunning. The building itself is absolutely beautiful. Floor to ceiling windows, uh, a little outside area to catch the sun to sit. There's a cafe, there's a shop, there's um, a museum, uh, an exhibition there with some very original things, believe me, including the Imagine Piano, which was only installed this mm. year, the original Imagine Piano from George Michael's estate. Mm. But the main thing of, of all, you did say, you that I was a special needs teacher, which I was. I was... I started out many, many years ago, about like 17th century, it feels like, as a languages teacher, and mainly French and English and a bit of maths and a bit of Spanish, but mainly French and English as my core mm -hmm. stuff. And when I went back after my third child, I just took a different route and went into special needs, and I found it the most challenging and rewarding time of my mm. career. That was the last 15 years. I went straight into the cavern from there, and then Strawberry Fields came up. Now, this time, instead of dealing with EBD, which was my specialism in education, which is emotional and behavioral difficulties, you have exactly the same thing in the States. I've looked at it all. I've been into schools. You, you've got exactly the same thing going on. I was working in a unit, running the unit. This isn't the same. What Strawberry Fields has opened for is to train young people with mild to moderate learning disabilities. When I say into life, I mean take them out of exclusion and seclusion mm -hmm. and loneliness and maybe their bedroom on a screen and help them, guide them to join in the world normally by some form of employment. And I'm not talking about nine to five, get a mortgage, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking 
these students from 16 to about 25 have mild to moderate learning difficulties, which means they can be uh, Down syndrome or various um, various abilities of Down syndrome. Um, they've had, I can say, various difficulties all their lives. They've never been mainstream. They've never been on the main train track. Mm -hmm. Now, the children I was working with before are highly capable of not only being on the train track, they probably built the thing. They're highly <laughs> intelligent, bored to death. School isn't coping with them. Their family lives are awful, and they need shunting back on the track because they need. We need society needs their abilities as much as, much as anything else. Right. But this, mm. these students, they're different, and they're just so lovely. And just let me give you one little story. One of the girls, we gave a talk, and we give a talk. We had a, a range of talks set up for business people, you know, to sponsor and to take an interest in them, the children. This mm -hmm. is going on even throughout lockdown. The school hasn't stopped. It's so important. And one of the girls, we asked, would anyone like to say anything? I'd given a talk to say, to explain the program. And the room was full, absolutely packed, lots of businessmen. Lots of potential sponsors were very interested in these people because we need them to take an interest. And this one girl said, I don't mind saying something. I said, it only has to be one or two words. She said, all right then. And she's very, very retiring, coy, quiet, no confidence whatsoever. Mm. And so I've given my talk and she went and just stood there and we just looked at her and I thought, she's not going to say anything. You know, you don't know. And she said, uh, and the, the chairman, who was very good, looked at her and said, what do you think the course has done for you? Because she'd actually been through it. And she said, before I was no one and now I'm not. Oh, oh gosh, that's so precious. Oh. I'll never forget it. Never, oh. never, never. That's exactly wow. what she said. And for all my blabbering of what I'd said and all the chairman and she nailed it in, in that yeah. little phrase. She had nailed the entire purpose of the program, the training program for these students. And so far, there's probably about between eight and ten in every group. I think... 60 kids have gone through. I keep calling them children because I was a teacher, but they're students, aren't they? And they're all doing bits of things. Now, in Liverpool, and because we have a massive Beatles industry, you know, if you go in, if you go into the Beatles Cafe, there's one of our students there doing a bit of work experience. If you go into the Beatles Museum, there's mm -hmm. another one there. If you, go, if you come into the cavern, when we reopen, there will be one there. If you know, we're all going to take the Beatles industry. Certainly, is going to take them on. And when we get back, we never got a chance to get up and running and get a grip. Mm. Now, part of my job when I did my old job, you know, was the EBD. These usually lads that you know were outrageously behaved because of their whole background, socioeconomic, everything. But they were often very bright. My 
job was to network, to find places that I could put them in for work experience to give them a chance to show their worth because no one else had given them that chance because their behavior was so bad. Now, come forward to Strawberry Field. It's nothing to do with their behavior. It's their lack of confidence. It's the Mm -hmm. fact that they've probably been sidelined by not their parents, of course, but the whole of society, you know, says that because they're not going to get their exams, they're, they're not going to go to university. And it's the same sort of thing. I am now, we now have a department networking to find places for these students. Now, so we can put pressure on the Beatles industry, not that they need pressure. Mm-hmm. One of them... I've spoken to Bill, and we're going to put him on the Magic, magic Mystery Tour bus. Oh, and right. he might be able, he'll be able to chat into the microphone. So we can find places, and I hope, desperately hope, uh, within five years, without these constant lockdowns, if we get a chance to, you know, get up mm-hmm. and run the horse, uh, that we everywhere you go in Liverpool, there will be a strawberry field graduate. Yeah, that is amazing. Uh, Can I jump in for one second, Lena? Oh, please! Sure. I've said my bit now about strawberry field. No, no, I just want to say the training program that is the focal point. It's so perfect, strawberry field, because of that line in John's song. No one. I think, mm-hmm. is in my tree. I mean, it must be high or low. And that has to be the feeling that these kids have. No one's sitting on the limb I'm sitting on. Either they're high yeah. above me or they're low. That's that's the whole motto of what you're doing. You've got it exactly. You've got it completely. That is exactly it. And then this fabulous building with these fabulous gardens will become their second home. It is their forever home. Once they've been through the course, and they do, they're in the cafe all day. Uh, you know, here's my nan and here's my... They bring the whole family because they have found somewhere that actually cares about them. Mm. Wow, Julia, that is an absolutely stunning story that, that you've shared about about your help with those children. And... Your brother, John, would be so proud of you. Well, the Salvation Army has actually set it up. The the actual setup, I had no idea until it was actually all underway. And then they asked me to come on board, and I talked to people, potential sponsors, put the hard hat on. I was there throughout the building talking to people. I jumped in with two feet because Mm. it was a wonderful project. But believe Mm. me, the the entire idea of the training school was all the Salvation Army. They just invited me to come in, and I'm privileged enough to be able to step in and out, do bits, chat to them. I did a poetry session with them about lockdown, and I wrote some Mm. poems here, not good ones, just Mm. poems, about lockdown, locked up, locked in, locked out, locked anyway, we're just locked up, you know, and they, they loved right. it. And I said, right, I want you to do some stuff now. And they wrote their own feelings because, you know, one of them, one of the girls said to me, I mean, she's in her 20s, and I said, what did lockdown mean to you? And she said, I thought I was going to die. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the school has kept going the whole time with a dedicated staff of coaches and staffers and they are they're funny they're uh, witty 
as you have to be in Liverpool and as you just are. Uh, <laughs> and they get into they get into the students and they there's a loyalty zinging round all over the place. It's a very privileged thing to be doing, but it was not my idea. I was just invited to jump in, and I did. Ah, so well, you you are very inspirational, and you're doing incredible, incredible work touching those lives of those precious, those precious children and young adults and your your brother would be extremely proud of the work that you're doing and I can I can feel you know the the love through you and that the same kind of love for humankind that John had as well so um well I'm sure he would have done that we would have had him in there doing guitar lessons <laughs> <laughs> so Julia, is it possible to see videos like a video tour or anything of of I think, the, I think the facility? So. I think if, if you go to the site, um, I don't think we all need the www bit, do we? Strawberryfieldliverpool dot com. So all the three words together, strawberryfieldliverpool dot com. Okay. Perfect. Um, Perfect. I think you. You'll be able to do a tour around the exhibition, and truly, it has things in it. It's got a mellotron that you can actually play. I think Ooh, it's the wow. only one in any of the museums you can actually put the headphones on and actually play a tune. Wow. It's got the actual Imagine Piano, which is wonderful, that John actually composed and recorded mm-hmm. Imagine on. So that's a, a, you know, that was a big coup, and we got that back in October, actually. So that's big. And we just got all that and ready to do big splashes, and we were locked down. Yeah. It's yeah. been, I mean, we're all human beings. It's been exasperating. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we hope that we can push through it and, and put it behind yes. us soon. Yes. I cannot wait to go. Not just us, it's everyone, but, you know, it, you can just see how it affects this particular yes. business. Of course, it's affecting every business. The cavern, for example, hasn't been opened. That, that all our businesses, the cavern, the, the, the pub, the restaurant, MMT, Magical Mystery Tour, and, of course, Beatles mm. Festival, it's all in mothballs because yeah. we don't want to open up to be closed down again the next day, which has happened. Yeah. Right. Mm. Well, I can't wait for Jude and I to uh, make it to Strawberry Field as soon as it's oh, safe. Let me know. Let me know if you're um, coming over, and I'll make sure that I'm there. If, I, if I'm in the country, I'll make sure that I'm there. Oh, that's Fantastic. so exciting. Fantastic. So, Julia, I'm going to kind of switch gears here, and I'm sure that all of our listeners realize that you were named in honor of your incredible mother, of course, John's mother also, Julia Stanley Lennon. And now Beatles fans know about Julia from the books we've read and films that we've seen. But, of course, you know the many sides of Julia that no book can convey. So tell Mm -hmm. us about this very special woman and about whom John wrote half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia, and to inspire a lifetime of devotion and hundreds of songs that changed the world. She must have been extremely amazing indeed. Well, I think she and John were a woman and a man, a person sort of out of their time, ahead of their time, both extremely artistic, creative, 
intelligent and restricted, certainly my mother, by the, the mores, the customs, the cultures of the time, certainly pre-war, mid-war, dictated. It, it's not that long ago, and it's still going on in much of the world, where particularly a woman's life is dictated to almost from cradle to grave. This is what you do now. This is what you do now. The expectation of what a woman's life is. Of course, we're extremely privileged in the West, aren't we? In, in America, Australia, you know what I mean by the West, the first world countries. We are so privileged. We moan and grumble. But my goodness, you know, a lot of the world, uh, the life of a girl is prescribed from birth to death. Mm-hmm. And so my mother, obviously we were never that bad here by um, wartime, but she was certainly a freer spirit than probably society would have liked her to be. Very artistic, as I said. She could sing, cheer my father in a Latin American dance. Hmm. Not professional. They they went every Wednesday. uh, Mm -hmm. It was probably in a little church hall, but it's somewhere that they could go to do it. And she had the most beautiful pink net dress with silver stars on it. And she played all these instruments. Now, my grandfather had come home, her father had come home from sea with two things, a monkey and a banjo. <laughs> now, oh, we, my goodness. We, heard, we heard tales about the monkey, you know, the old sailor's monkey ripping the curtains off and stuff like that. But oh. uh, the banjo had a back that was all mother of pearl. And Rod Davis of the Quarrymen we're friends, and every now and again he, he sends me a, a little link and says, do you think this could be your mum's banjo? And I say, no, yeah. uh, because the banjo on that has the, the neck is all mother of pearl. But I distinctly remember it was the back. It was really mm. quite special. So she played that. She played the piano accordion, the same sort of ones that uh, French musicians played, the great big heavy, almost piece of furniture that you put on you know they've got these wonderful light things now haven't they that you can just play the keys and it's almost over one shoulder in the olden days it was almost like a piano that you picked up and strapped it to your thumb so she played that she played the piano she played the ukulele so you know she played these instruments and she was teaching John to play not the guitar the banjo and meanwhile, half a mile away, a mile away, in Paul McCartney's house, uh, uh, the very next estate of houses, as I say, it was a five-minute walk, he was learning to play bits of piano, because his father played the jazz piano, and a guitar. And sort of the, the, the embryonic Beatles, unbeknown to each other initially, were having a go, just up the road from each other, and they've no idea until we met at Walton Tate. Wow. That's a beautiful mm. vision, isn't it? I, I love what you say that, that Julia and John were ahead of their time. I think that is a, a very, very telling description of, of them. And was Julia self-taught, or did she take any lessons? No, she didn't take lessons, but her father had taught her I mean, I, I, I don't know where any lessons were involved at all, but the, the girl over the road, if anyone's read the book, you will see that there were 
the family over the road that we became very, very friendly with, um, the, the older girls spent as much time with my mother as they could because she was you know, a bit wacky and a bit different. And they used to come and babysit. And their mother, Hannah, used to say, you can't keep going over there, you can't keep going over there. But my, my mother encouraged it. And she was actually teaching Rita to play the piano. Rita was about four years older than we were. And I was friendly with the younger girls, Anne and Claire. These are the older sisters. Uh, and they couldn't keep away from our house. And it was my mother that they were after, and they wanted to play the piano. And one of them was very good at it. Now, my mother was teaching her to play the piano, but I don't remember her ever having any lessons. We grew up with her knowing how to play it. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, we're going to move on and do a kind of a little fun part of the show. So, Julia, as you know, people naturally recognize you as an authority on all things John Lennon, but they might tend to forget that you knew all of the boys quite well. And, I mean, they used to practice regularly in your Blomfield Road bathroom and kitchen when you were growing up and throughout the, the 1960s, you continued to see them as you attended film premieres and visited John and Cynthia in, in Kenwood, and yeah. you remained an integral part of the Beatles family. So in a sort of lightning round without the lightning <laughs> element, <laughs> uh, but you can, you can talk as long as you like, but I'm going to ask you to share some memories about the other Beatles. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So since I'm a Georgie girl... And that's Lena, not me. <laughs> I'm, a huge, that's right. I'm, a, I'm a John girl. <laughs> I'm an Elvis girl. There you go. There you go. Without Elvis, there was nothing. <laughs> exactly. I'm an Elvis girl, yeah. No, I have to say straight away that although I know Ringo and I've met him... I have not got a, you know, kept up any form of relationship with Ringo. So he rarely, rarely, rarely comes back to Liverpool. Um, we just don't bump into each other. So I, all I'm saying is if we're talking about awful Beatles, you know, he was an important Beatle, but I haven't got a relationship with him. Okay. Um, of course, George is no longer here, but the, the relationship I had with, with George, I knew him right from the start, right from his arrival into Springwood, you know, into our house in Springwood. When we went to London to stay with John in Kenwood, my sister and I, when there was no kitchen in the house or anything, he just wanted us to come straight away. So there was the house, and it was being, it was an old Tudor house, old mock Tudor house, and they'd ripped the kitchen out, and they'd ripped this out, and they'd ripped that out, and Jackie and I went to stay, and he said, well, girls, there's no mm-hmm. kitchen. So we had to either go out or send out for food all the time. And that's when we went to the Finchbury mm-hmm. Park Astoria. So we were off in London with John all over the place. But we did mm-hmm. go to George's house when he lived with Patty Boyd. And they had this big bungalow, and there wasn't a chair in it. <laughs> they, well, they were being hippies, weren't they? And there were mm-hmm. big cushions everywhere. And we sat on the floor. And George sent out for an Indian, or I think he went out to get Indian food, and we all sat on the floor and had Indian food. 
<laughs> no kitchen in Camelot. There, there wasn't a kitchen yet. It didn't happen. So uh, he'd invited us to stay and told us there was no food, and we got there. So uh, that was George. He, he, George was very nice, and Patty Boyd was uh, lovely with Jackie and I, really a nice, nice lady. Oh. The, the one mm. um, I still know is Paul. Um, the, there's always been a nice relationship with Paul, always. You know, I can uh, go to concerts, uh, yeah, I can ring up. And there's, it's not, not staying with each other or anything like that. It's not that sort of relationship. But, you know, I know if I rang Paul and said, do you know what, I'm really in trouble here, I think he'd say, well, what can I do? I just know that. I would never ring him, but I just know that he would always be there. Right. Um, so I've, I've got numbers that I can ring, and it's usually one-sided for me, which is can we come to this concert and can we come to this concert? Because to see him in concert is just something else. You've been to a poor mm. concert, haven't you? Oh, have yeah. you been recently? Yes. My He's God. incredible. Yeah. How does he do it? Two, three hours. Three hours and not a, not a sip of water. He runs. He jumps. He leaps. Mm-hmm. He sings. And he does not stop. He doesn't And he leave. engages. He's completely engaged. And he's mesmerizing. Yeah. I, I, I just think he really is the world's superstar. He is, he is a performer. It, that, that, was, yeah. that was what he was meant to be. What would John think yeah, of him? Hmm? Sorry? What do you think John would, would think of Paul today with all of his performing still? Well, I don't know if Paul would be doing what he was doing if John was here, do you? No, I think it would be something totally different. Yeah, yeah, T- totally different. In fact, I think they might be doing something together. Uh, yes, absolutely, because uh, they're the dream team, aren't they? Well, that's what I've called them in my book right from the start when they didn't even know each other and they were a mile apart, half a mile apart, doing their bits, learning the instruments right from the start. They, I call them the dream team. Yeah, love because that. Because they, they balanced each other completely, didn't they? Hmm. Yeah, hey. absolutely. So, Julia, I have one more question and then we'll turn it over to Jude. But I know she would not forgive me if I didn't ask you uh, what your memories of Stu Sutcliffe were, and did did you feel like um, did you know John's best friend? And I I, I think John considered him as a a soul a soulmate. Stuart Clifford, yeah, <laughs> Sutcliffe. Yeah, I've met him. I didn't know him as a friend. I met him because Cynthia Stewart and John lived in a flat in the middle of Liverpool, and I lived in a flat not far from that on the same terrace in fact years later so we knew where that flat was and we knew Stuart and certainly John and Stuart got on like a house on fire <laughs> I've done I went to Hamburg on behalf of the cavern with one of my colleagues a couple of years ago and we did a strange thing we did a tour a Beatles tour of Hamburg you know we just did the tour. We just decided to do it. And I, it's not often I would do anything like that. And, of course, Stuart came up there, and I learned a lot about what was going on at that time because we'd gone on that tour. Yeah. And, obviously, we all know Stuart had fallen in love with Astrid. 
decided to stay in Hamburg and, you know, pursue his art studies. He was he was a big part of the sort of exy presentation, you know, the black polar necks, the mm-hmm. beetle haircut. Mm-hmm. It was all from French existentialism, which I studied for my own French honors degree in France. I did French existentialism, and it was exactly that. They were everyone wore a black polar neck to be cool, mm-hmm. chic, and the Beatles haircut was all sort of part of it. And that was promoted in Hamburg by Stuart. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That look, that look. So he was very, very dear to all of them and to John. I don't think John would ever have got over the the fact he died as suddenly as he did. Yeah, it's. I think for the rest of his life, he carried your mother, and he carried Stu with him, and yeah. they they I were think, the. I think so. Yeah, they they were what made him up. Well, Julia, if it's okay with you, I want to read an excerpt from Imagine This and talk about it. It's an emotional excerpt, but you say one of, one of your earliest memories was seeing your mother sitting and listening to a particular record that reminded her of John. And this is what you wrote about that moment. You said, although you didn't see John much in those early, earliest days, John was the ghost in our house. I realize now that my mother was grieving as well as living. She went on loving us and smiling and hugging with such warmth while the life was being squeezed right out of her bones. So... Tell us what was going on at that time and what had transpired to to make things the way they were. Well, that was that was the. It's a story that really uh, you've got to read the book to understand it. I mean, it took a book to get that onto paper, so yeah. it's a very difficult thing. But in in a very short, sort of concise way. John and uh, John's father, Al Lennon, and my mother had been married a good few years before they had John. And he went to sea. He always wanted to go to sea. He refused to be a landlubber. You know, he just did not want to be at home. He was in the Merchant Navy. He was traveling to and fro to the States mainly. And uh, on the old spam run, you know, uh, taking meat, bringing meat back. Mm. And he disappeared in America, and my mother had been getting money because they were married and they had a child, and she'd been getting eight shillings a week from his money that was given to her because he was away. And she went down to get this money at the Siemens Mission one time and was just told, you can't have any money, he's gone AWOL, he's gone Mm. missing. Mm -hmm. There's many, many stories about what happened to him. It turned out he might have been in prison. I don't know because I wasn't in America and I haven't met anyone to corroborate properly any of the stories. So I think I've said this might have happened and this might have happened. But what definitely did happen was back in Liverpool, my mother was left with a child and no financial support whatsoever. And Alfred just disappeared. She didn't hear from him at all for 18 months. And she met someone got pregnant and had Victoria that I didn't know anything about until 1985, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, it was never, never talked about. You know, um, most families have some form of skeleton mm-hmm. in the cupboard. 
and you may go your whole life, even if you live till 90, never know about it. Well, unfortunately, our skeleton, our cupboard, dusty cupboard has been opened and all the skeletons have been brought out so that everyone can have a little word about them. Mm-hmm. And often the people who are sort of critical don't know that their own cupboard is right behind them. Be careful. <laughs> so, you know, she had a baby. My father, my grandfather, Pop, and Mimi insisted that she wasn't keeping the baby. It was a shameful thing. And even though Alpha disappeared and she got no money, it was totally irrelevant to them. It's all about uh, middle class morality and, you know, keeping up the joke, you know, keeping everything uh, smart on the outside, all mm-hmm. rubbish. So Victoria was adopted and then uh, she met my father. But when my mother had had Victoria, I now know that she'd gone into what we would now call postnatal depression. Now, my aunt told me about it. And earlier you said, Jude, about my doing two books. Now, I did um, John Lennon, my brother, in response to a documentary in 1985 that was totally wrong, that was supposed to be commemorating five five years since John had died. Mm -hmm. And there were so many factual errors in it that I couldn't believe it. I hadn't looked at it. I was grieving, I was getting on with my job, I was raising three children, um, I, you know, I was working full time. I hadn't looked at what was going on. But this documentary came on and it was on the BBC, which is supposed to be well respected. So everyone watched it. Julian wasn't even mentioned. He wasn't even in it wow. at all. Mm. Yeah. So I got in touch with the Liverpool Echo spoke to the editor, and he's the one that told me about Victoria. I did not know. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I then started ferreting around, of course, um, and finding out about things. But what I now know, because Nanny, my mother's middle of five sisters, the one I became closest to in my adult life, one, because we always lived in the same area, and two, because, uh, you know, we cared for each other. She told me the story before she died. In the last 18 months before she died, she died in 1997. So, you know, the last couple of years, she started to talk to me. And I said, Nani, these are the things I've been asking you for years. She said, I know they are. I'm telling you now. And I said, why are you telling me? She said, because you're the only one that's ever been interested. And it's funny, I met her son, Michael, my cousin, a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago to give him some family stuff. And uh, he said, do you know what? I never talked to mother about anything. I said, oh, I know Michael, because she used to tell me. Yeah. He was a good son. He looked after her. He did the garden. He cared for her. He, d- he did all the money bit. He did everything. But he was not interested in sitting listening to the stories. And I was asking her all the time, what about this? What about this? What about this? Tell me this. Tell me this. And in the end, she said, you're the only one that's ever asked these questions. I'm telling you now, just listen. And she would tell me their stories again and again. And it changed everything. And she said, after Victoria, my mother was ill. I mean, took to her bed when the baby had gone because she was allowed to look after her for six weeks. Not allowed to, made to. 
yeah. with oh. the adoptive parents waiting to take her away. Oh. Um, but this is what happened. Oh. This is what happened. And there was no what we call welfare state, you know, or even a food stamp. There was nothing, nothing. Mm. So uh, she was ill afterwards. And I said to Nanny, would you call that postnatal depression? And of course, she was like 86, 87. And she said, I don't know what you'd call it. Your mother was very ill. Right. And it was, wasn't it? So Mimi just took advantage of that. It's as simple as that. She was an opportunist, and she took advantage of that. And then when my mother went to get John back, I put in the book, John was six, and she threw John behind her and said, get out, get out, get out, you're not having him. And my cousin was there at the time. Yeah. She told me about that. Yeah. So I haven't made any of that up. It's all from... You know, it's all from other people. And John was the victim. And he doesn't know any of this, didn't know any of this. Yeah. And that's the saddest thing. He did not know. I think it would have changed everything had he known. Of course it would. Of course you it know, would. And, it, it, and I think in a way it would have, although his heart was so broken and he could not figure out why, why does my mother keep her two daughters and she didn't keep me? It must be me. Yeah, it's yep. not her. He she loves that. children. He you said know. that to me. You had her and I didn't. You had her and I didn't. Right. And so he blamed himself and all the, through the rest of his life he's singing these songs to her, you know, but it would have changed everything had he known for sure. Well, we didn't know. It was only because I was... I was like somebody with a pickaxe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I wasn't giving up until I dug the foundations for the building, which was the book. I wasn't giving up. Yeah, I, I wish, so wish I had known that when I wrote Should Have Been There. Now, well, I portrayed Julia as heartbroken, heartbroken when Mimi finally finds a way to get him. She sent social services over there before. Yeah. She, she yeah. finally gets her way. But I, had I known, and I, and I intend to go back, and completely revise it with all of the new information. But at that time, we didn't know this. You know, no, there was no, there, nobody knew it. This is the thing. N nobody, nobody knew it. Um, you know, I've s spoken to Philip Norman, and he said, uh, "What you have said makes my book ridiculous and rubbish." Yeah. And I said, we didn't know the story at the time. And um, what was nice for him. He wanted to write a book with me. He said, let us write the book together. And I said, no, Philip, it's got to be me. Yep. Uh, I, this is something I have to do by myself. Yep. Um, but uh, what he said was, in the national press, when Imagine This came out, he said, well, we can all stop. Julia's done it. We can all stop now. Right. It is beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so hard to read. It's not... You know, it, you're going to have your heart broken, but but then but then comes the summer of peace when John is is 13, his 14th birthday is coming up in October, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's that first birthday that you're allowed to share, you know, with him, your mother, your father, you two girls. So tell us what changed that allowed him to be able to then become well, a part of your family. Yeah. Well, the thing is, uh, he was always in my life, so he was never not there. When we left Penny Lane in 1949, that was Mimi's opportunity. So John was already nine, and uh, we shared a bedroom. We had the same bedroom. 
So when John came, I would sleep in a different bed, probably with my parents, and John would have his bedroom back, and then he would go back to Mimi's and I'd go back in that bedroom. Um, that was in, until 1949, August, when um, we moved house. And at that point, Mimi said to John, your mother has moved away with that man and I don't know where she's gone. Mm. <laughs> that was October. And then my sister was born. Uh, that was, sorry, sorry, August 1949. My sister was born in October. She was due in December. She was due at Christmas and born in October, so she was a premature baby. So then my mother uh, spent nearly three months mostly in the hospital and my grandmother my father's mother moved in uh to look after me because there was this premature baby i mean i didn't know what was going on mm -hmm. uh, i was only two and a half but there was a, a baby that was you know i suppose on death's doorstep yeah uh, she survived of course didn't come home till january and my mother spent most of the time from october to january in the hospital Mm -hmm. So then Jackie came home, and I remember the day that she came home. And uh, at Easter, Stan, my cousin Stan was 16, and they'd moved to Edinburgh, and he came down on the coach to Edinburgh, from Edinburgh to Liverpool for his summer holidays, his Easter holidays, as, to spend time with the family. And his mother, another of the sisters, the next eldest sister to Mimi, said, this is... Judy, my mother, this is Judy's address. Get John to see his mother. So mm -hmm. none of them approved of what Mimi was doing, but she was a law unto herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no doubt about down, it. Yeah, Stan came down and took, brought John to see us in the February. So, the, you know, the half term, as we are now, so we're in half term now, like spring break. And um, so it, it was that amount of time that he hadn't been, not years. It was that amount of time. Right. And Stan brought him down. Well, once Stan had brought him, that was it. He came down. He came down by himself. My mother then started to go up to Mendips because it was out in the open that John had, you know, He'd been brought brought to see her, and uh, then when he changed school when he was eleven, he came when he liked. Yeah, because he got the bus to school. He came when he liked, and that yeah. was often and spent days there and didn't go to school. He was in his uniform, and then all weekends and then all holidays. So we never lost sight of John. We never lost track of him. Yeah, and of course it's during that time that pivotal moment what I would give to be there when your mother told John a secret that he had music in his bones and she begins mm -hmm. to teach him to play these instruments and all the great rock and roll songs that she she's the one that loved all this great rock and roll music what do you remember about that well my, it was, uh, my father came in with um, Hound Dog uh, is that that's the mm -hmm. first one isn't it the first Elvis one and uh -huh. that is this what you wanted and we had the old record player, and uh, they were all jiving in the living room. You know, uh, that was my mm -hmm. mother, my father, John, Stan, Leela, 
it was all big excitement. And then they started to listen to Gene Vincent, Eddie, Eddie Cochran, um, Buddy Holly. They were all Buddy Holly fans. And then Lonnie Donegan and Rock Island Line. And it, was, it, it wasn't just the Beatles then, was it? The, the Quarrymen or anything that John was in. It yeah. was everyone in the Western world. And, and it all starts with Julia. I mean, it's her love of rock and roll. It's her belief that he has music in his bones, that she has him believe, and that he's destined to form a band. And, you know, it just is unbelievable the difference that she made in the world. She changed everything. Yeah. She really did. Well, one episode that I love in both of your books is this account of seeing John on the stage for the very first time at what all authorities really consider to be the Quarrymans' first big gig. They had others, but this was the big one when they were invited by Marjorie Roberts to perform at the Roseberry Street Festival. So tell us about that great day. Well, we, Jackie and I had gone to the Sunday school, you know, it's our lives sort of revolved around church, didn't they? And we'd gone to the Sunday school outing, annual outing. Um, we got back on the, the coach that had taken us all. We, we were all dropped back at the church, the church community centre. And my mother was waiting there uh, to take us off the bus with all the other mothers. And we only lived over the road. And we expected to go home, you know, have tea, have a bath, go to bed, as what would normally happen. But we didn't. We went over the road and got the bus into town. And it was the excitement, you know, that was a special treat for us. And uh, we went to the Rosebridge Street Festival. It was on the back of a coal lorry that had not been cleaned properly, I can tell you. And <laughs> we, got, we got back on the, we got on the back of that and we got off it quickly because it was very, very noisy and absolutely filthy. There was colder, small bits of coal everywhere. My mother went into one of the houses because one of the mums had made tea and sandwiches for everybody so my mother had gone in there and um the shirts that they wore my mother had bought at the market about two weeks before and i'd been with her when we'd gone down to the local market and she bought real genuine american ha-ha uh, cowboy shirt <laughs> And they love those shirts, and John's got his on on that. Anyway, uh, a gang came, and we were all aware of it, and there was a bit of an argy-bargy going on. And like teenagers, there was a, about to be a punch-up. And uh -huh. them had shouted, get that Lennon. And uh, we were escorted by a policeman to the local bus stop to make sure we left. <laughs> and, and they won a competition, Rosebury Street Carnival, which is where it had happened, won the competition to have another free celebration paid for by the council, but they weren't invited back to that. that that's such a day. I love them. And they went in Marjorie Roberts' house until the, the Heather, Heatherly Street gang had gone home. I mean, you know, we're a lover, not a fighter. We don't want to fight the Heatherly Street gang. Let them go. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to be a fight. Yeah. It's so funny. Do you talk about the time you went to see Mimi when she refused to let you come in? Oh, right, yeah. Oh, she, she, because I just, I almost knew as I was going up the path at the side that here's Julia looking for John. So she, she lived her life with Julia looking for John. And here I, here I was again. There was something, an, an undercurrent with Mimi and I, 
and it was something I didn't understand as a child, but she understood as an adult. I understood it later. And uh, I think probably guilt, absolute guilt. Hmm. You're, you're very emotionally well though to be able in the book even though she won't let you see John and she slams the door on you you try to see that event from her eyes and not many people would do that I mean that takes a big person to be able to see that event from her eyes well there was no other way to see it you know there was no but I just didn't think why is she well I didn't think why is she done that without following it up in my own head yeah yeah it's just it was a tragic tragic situation but you know to me julia the reason that i decided to spend my life doing this wasn't because of john being a beatle or a great composer which he is or the fact that he was a gifted author and won the foils literary award or that he was a talented artist whose art still tours the world and, or a peace activist none of that i i did it because of one thing john never quit he never gave up he took unbearable yeah. tragedy and he turned it into something beautiful and no matter what life handed him he persevered and he kept going and you do the exact same thing and in the two books that you've written and what you've done to help Liverpool and what you've done to help children who have needs that are beyond what the ordinary Joe Blow can understand you and John both always move forward and get past deep hurts that could have pulled you down and one of my favorite stories about John is the way that you looked after him when you went to the premiere of a hard day's night in in city center you're at town hall and you're instead of you know you're enjoying it you're having fun and all of that but you're worried about him being hungry and you're worried yeah. that he he's, tell us that we were, story we was well we were scoffing everything the four of us were running around eating everything in sight because uh, it was like free food wasn't it and um I just thought, oh, John's got had nothing to eat, so I took in some sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking after him. Yeah, he said, I'll have them later, I'll have them later. So cute. And then that night, when you get to the premiere, he can't see, in the audience, he can't find his family. So tell us what he did. That's right. That's right. Well, he came out before the film started. He came out and... Um, opened the curtain, stood on the station, the spotlight went straight on him, of course, uh, because no one has expected it. Everyone was still sort of buzzing and chatting, and it, it wasn't about to happen yet. And he just shouted out, I've lost my family. Where are you? I've lost my family. <laughs> and we, said, we all stood up and shouted, we're here, John, we're here. It's okay, it's okay. And he went, right, 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 and went back at, behind the curtain because he <laughs> wasn't sure that we'd made it in there. And I think that's the that tells you all you need to know about John. The reason he wrote all those songs, the reason he needed to form the Quarrymen and later the Beatles, the reason he kept on keeping on is because I half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to read you, Julia. It's where's my family, and that that's yeah. it. That's it right there. You know. Well, last question for me, and then I'm going to turn it back to Lena. Is that, you know. Um, 
during those days you talked about going to Kenwood and the you you must have been there in 64 because of it not being completed that's when it's being renovated did you get to go back to Kenwood after it was renovated or spend some no, time with no. John and Cynthia no I didn't when you know you did you as the years went along through Beatlemania did you ever get a chance to reconnect in any way with John during those years of Beatlemania um, well, you know, apart from, yes, because he would turn up at home. He would turn up in Walton, and he would just turn up. Yeah. So, you know, it's not an, you're talking about reconnecting like it, um, that was in a big way, or going to the house, because we went to, we went specifically at that time, in actual fact, to go to Finsbury Park Astoria Christmas show. So it was to get us there while that show was on. Um, so, but the other times he didn't just disappear. He only disappeared when he went to America. Right. And strangely, I had gone to Ireland. I got married in August in 1968, and I had gone to Ireland and didn't come back. You know, was living there in about June 1968. So, and then John was doing all the stuff with Yoko. This is when it, everything went sort of, when the family stuff dissipated. I was growing up and he was moving on. And if he'd stayed in England, if he'd stayed in the UK, uh, I believe, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure about this, but I have heard that there were two alternatives. One was to live in New York and the other one was to live in Paris. Now, if he'd lived in Paris, we'd never have lost touch. Right. Is it? It was New York. It was America. Yeah. Yeah. But you, did you talk to him? You talked to him on the phone, I know, several times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, a lot. I talked yeah. on the phone a lot and wrote letters. And I last spoke to him in 1980 on November the 17th because it was Nanny, the aunt that I'm talking to. It was her birthday. And I'd gone down to see her on her birthday and John phoned to wish Nanny Happy birthday. And we Aww. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, this is Lena, <laughs> Julia. Jude and I are just so feel so privileged that you were uh, kind enough to share your beautiful memories with us and have the opportunity to tell you how much we how much we loved getting to visit with you, even in the midst of this terrible pandemic. I hope hopefully we can you in person at Strawberry Fields. The listeners can check out Strawberry Fields at the strawberryfieldsliverpool.com. And okay. Julia, also let our listeners know where they can buy copies of your books. Yeah, okay. So that's juliabaird.co.uk. That's all they've got to do. juliabaird.co. .uk and you'll get my book you'll get the copy of the CD interview that I did with Paul McCartney we sat in his office all afternoon just chatting and wow. um, recorded it and he gave it to me he said you know good luck he knew I was doing it for the backbone for the first book and of course I've used it for the backbone of the second book because this is literally straight from the horse's mouth and, of course, nobody has contradicted anything because they know it's true. But it is true because Paul was telling me. 
what was going on. So the, the interview is there, uh, the book is wow. there, and a fabulous, fabulous cavern wall poster that my friend did for me as a 50th birthday present. And I've had it put onto linen grained. Uh, it's a fabulous poster of the cavern wall, mm. a stylized cavern wall. You have to look at it. Those three things. But there's little stories okay. in it as well. And there's my Strawberry Field blog. I've only ever done one blog, and it's all about Strawberry Field, the history, the photographs, right back from when a sea captain built his other house in 18-something or other, 43, I think it was, when he had it built because it was in a rich part of Liverpool, and the sea captains had mega houses built there, and that's how it started. Mm. So my blog is on there and of course that's all freely available you can just go and i think there's about 19 posts now with photographs and the setting up of strawberry field it's from the beginning and how it was set up and when it opened and everything well i'm looking at a picture of it right now beautiful it was a beautiful beautiful place what a magnificent home that was it is absolutely a lovely place so it's juliabaird.co.uk well, Julia, thank you from our hearts for being not only here tonight, which it's late in Liverpool, and we thank you for staying up past midnight and into the wee hours or the small hours, as you'd say, mm -hmm. and mostly for being such an important part of our lives. Um, I appreciate you setting the record straight about what really happened with your mother and, and letting us know because so much of the story has been distorted and you really set the record straight. We appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And please know that from my heart, I will live out the rest of my life telling John's story from this end, too. So with you, I, I really hope that the world always remembers, remembers the great gift that your mother gave us through what she taught John to believe. So thank you for sharing your memories with us. Well, thank you, Jude, and thank you, Lena. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much, Julia. We send you our best. And you too. And, well, and the next time I see you, hopefully, we'll be in Strawberry Field. Well, we will look forward to for, it. We really will. Yeah, we'll work on that for sure. Okay. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Julia. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that concludes not only this episode of She Said, She Said, but our incredible 14-month journey with the Beatles family. I hope that all of you have enjoyed getting to hear from such amazing and special people. And if, and if you haven't heard the shows with Beatles first bass player, Chaz Newby, or with Angie and Ruth McCartney, or with Rogue Best, you can find our shows at Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. See you again very soon when we'll be kicking off our 2021 look at the psychedelic Beatles. Until then, here's to Food for Thought, Food for the Soul, and Food for the Love of Rock and Roll. Ta-ra and shine on.